Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the 4-4 Supreme Court. And Richard, ever since Justice Scalia died earlier this year and it became clear that Republicans were not going to move on Merrick Garland's nomination as his successor, we knew we were going to be living in a somewhat tense environment with a Supreme Court that was divided 4-4 between Republican appointees and Democratic appointees. We now have seen one of the more unusual manifestations of that in the decision the court reached uh, or didn't, as the case may be, in the Little Sisters of the Poor case, which you and I have talked about before on this program. But why don't you remind us briefly what that case was about and then explain what the court did here? Yes. Well, first of all, this was not a 4-4 decision. It was what we call a per curiam decision, right. meaning every justice on the Supreme Court, all eight signed on to it, but none of them actually put their names to it as an individual opinion. So it's to under be understood to be a collective deliberation. And if you had a single justice writing it, either liberal or conservative, it would essentially undermine that sort of distant neutrality, which is the essence of this particular opinion. But the basic problem in the Little Sisters case is, is really very, very simple. You have this organization, the Little Sisters and Zubik and lots of other places, and what they believe is that the provision of contraception to any person is inconsistent with their religious beliefs. And what the government tried to do is to put in an accommodation whereby they would not have to provide this and that the provision of this stuff would come through their insurance companies. And now, the question is, why would you pick on these random insurance companies to do it if, in fact, the women of the organizations would not authorize this? And the answer was that the groups would then sign a form. And the form would have two things associated with it. One is that we're not going to provide any of this. And two, we authorize you to go after our insurance companies. And in the debate when the oral argument took place before the Supreme Court, it was kind of a surreal experience because the government came forward and it kept on insisting uh, that the only thing they were asking these people to do was to sign off on their own coverages. And the lawyers on the other side, Paul Clement and No Francesco, uh, said, no, what you're requiring us to do is to sign off and to authorize you to go after our insurance company and asking us to authorize that you sue some Somebody else is in fact complicity in something which we regard as illegal. Deny the fact of authorization and we'll sign on to your program. Uh, you want to supply this out of government funds in some other ways. Uh, where are the little sisters? Where's Zubik? We can't control any of this. And the government said, no, 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 no. We're not authorizing you to do anything. So, you know, they basically disagreed about the single most fundamental fact in the case. And it turns out the little sisters and their side were correct. Uh, the government form was designed to serve two purposes. So, when they figured all of this out, they then go and they ask all the parties to brief the issue. And the government briefs the issue, bad brief, I dare say, and the Little Sisters explain their position. And what they do is they come down with a unanimous position, and it says essentially two things. One is you've got to be able to figure out a way in which the Little Sisters can sign off without putting themselves into mortal peril on the religious side. That's the real victory in this case. So essentially, whatever it's worth in the short run, um, it's the religious groups have won, not lost. And then they said, and the government has got, quote, unquote, a compelling state interest 
and seeing that all the coverages flow seamlessly into one another. Um, to call that a compelling state interest, I think, is bizarre. Um, people have different coverages for Medicare and Medicaid and dental insurance and special disease insurance and all the stuff, and there's nothing seamless about it. It's just done by contract. And what's happened is the government is guts the bone that, well, we could, you can make sure that it's seamless as well. And so that's what simply happened in this particular case. And, and nothing is binding on anybody, and they're going to have to hear it again. If Justice Scalia had been alive, I have no question they would have struck this thing down and he might have been thundering from the bench about how terrible it is to engage in this coercion. Now what you do is you have this tepid sort of response and who knows what the next move will be. My hope is that the administration will simply confess error on the point and say, look, um, we will get some kind of authorization from Treasury to impose this burden on the insurance companies. Ironically, in my view, on their say, so simply to require them to provide a coverage for other people without receiving a print a premium is a kind of confiscatory action. And I think that the correct thing to do in this case is for the government to say, we think it's so important that women have this kind of protection. We will pay for it out of general revenues because it's a social issue and not force a particular insurance company that, that happens to make a profit on some other commodity that it sells to these people to write this thing uh, free of charge. Everybody, uh, legal pundits anyway, seemed um – Shocked by this may be an overstatement, but it, it was an unusual way for the court to handle a case like this, and what was that was widely attributed to was the fact that you didn't have – because there was not nine justices, you didn't have the ability to stake out a clear majority here. Does the way that the court handled it strike you as appropriate given those constraints? Yes. Remember, what they could have done is left the thing in absolute chaos by simply saying 4-4 four, four, and just write an opinion which says – um, no opinion, lower decisions stand. Uh, now, in this particular case, I think it's also worth noting that most of the lower decisions, I think, came out the wrong way and argued that this was a sensible accommodation without any element of coercion. And so those decisions would have still been binding. This essentially means that the whole process now starts over again. And so although it's not an outright victory for the Little Sisters and their various allies, I think it's certainly a movement in that direction. And this just strikes me, you know, like the gender wars that we're seeing um, in the bathrooms today is one of these totally unnecessary fights picked by the administration designed to make a social statement instead of trying to figure out how it is you keep a, the peace by having a minimum disruption of established institutions when you try to impose some new kind of program. So we have for the foreseeable future, it seems, um, this equilibrium where we're going to have an eight-member court, it seems at least until probably early next year. How should we think about that, Richard? Is that is that a crisis? Is that something we should even be worried about? Well, look, my view is it's not a crisis. I think that's too strong, but it certainly is a legitimate source of concern. Uh, but you always have to ask the question, how bad is it compared to something else? Uh, there have been many other times where the court has been split 4-4, either because of an unexpected death or most notably in the case of Justice Jackson, who took off for about 14 months after the Second World War to participate in the Nuremberg trials. Uh, but those were much less fractious times than they are today. And the court was also much less large. 
much then the level of legislative ambition was much much lower than it is and so you know those cases you set for re-argument and a year later no big deal it gets done but you're talking here about huge administrative law cases like the ones dealing with the um, Affordable Care Act and, and to sort of leave something like this in limbo is a danger the same thing is also true with respect to the Friedrichs case having to do with the question as to whether or not uh, non-union members or people who are opposed to unions are forced riders or free riders under this situation. That's still in limbo and there'll be divided authorities. These are much larger issues and one would like to see them resolved. Uh, but the Republican position is you put a man like Merrick Garland on the court, he's just fine. And in fact, if he were to replace any of the four liberal judges, there would not be a peep about um, anything. But the fear is that he's going to make it 5-4. He's going to vote with them on all. And at this particular point, once you get the fifth liberal judge, you think less of what it is that Garland or any individual thinks and more about the cultural and legal offensive that is going to be amounted by the American liberal and left-wing establishment in order to make sure that these guys get rid of cases and overturn them. There is no question that there is a fairly long list of cases uh, that these people believe all ought to be summarily overruled, no questions about it. It's just a question of good or evil. And it's not just the most recent cases, it's also earlier cases. And a most vulgar and intemperate blog, a man named Mark Tushnet, who has the misfortune of teaching law at Harvard, um, what he did is he sort of gave a list of all the cases that he wants to go. He says, I don't want to do any business whatsoever with Justice Kennedy. Um, he said it in more earthy language than that. <laughs> and, you know, these cases include Washington against Davis, a decision by Louis Powell, I think it was, you know, 40 odd years ago saying uh, that you do not treat any racial violation of the Equal Protection Clause as a disparate impact situation. You have to show some kind of intention to create some sort of imbalance. I would have thought that that was settled law on both sides. Uh, but what's going to happen is when this stuff starts to get opened up again, there will be a very powerful onslaught. And, you know, I'm not going to say that the Republicans have a right to continue majorities on the court if the Democrats win the next election. Um, but I am actually somewhat upset about the ferocity about the way in which this thing is going. And I think it's a very bad sign in America more generally uh, that the cultural wars mean that the only way in which we approach any legal issue today is to scream. And that's been true on the transgender front. It's been true on the harassment in schools fronts and so forth. There's just a lot of coercion in this particular form. Much of it takes place not in the courts at all. It gets placed through administrative guidances and similar kinds of orders. But there is no question uh, that once you get a five-member liberal majority, they will be under very sharp pressure to move themselves even further to the left than the individual members might be willing to do. How they will proceed and how they will respond to it, uh, nobody can really tell. Uh, but this will be a very hyper-intense hyper um, legal environment once the fifth liberal is established on the court. Despite the threat that that prospect poses, do Republicans have to rethink their calculus in holding out on Garland now that it seems that Donald Trump, who if nothing else we can say is unpredictable, is their presumptive nominee? Well, I mean, I think the answer is yes. So what you have to do is to decide whether bad is worse than worse. I mean, you know, the space between a Sotomayor and a Garland on policy issues is if you were doing it on a scale of, say, six, where uh, minus three is liberal and plus three is six, is plus six, three is, dem is, is conservative, uh, she may be a minus three, he's a minus one. 
minus a half or minus one. So there's a big difference. And it turns out that if he is not there and somebody like her is put on the court, it will just be a rapid march in that particular position. And so if I were the prudent Republicans, I would think that the rate of decline would be important as well as the fact of decline. And I would try to strike a deal. And I think my deal would be to confirm Merrick Garland. Um, If Trump becomes president, I don't even know what to think. I mean, nobody knows what this man believes about everything, including judicial power. The only thing we know is that he has a sister who's been a judge somewhere along the line, um, but he's a complete blank slate on this. And so what's really going to happen, I think, for everybody is people are going to wait to see the way in which this presidential campaign is going to emerge to get some sense of this. And the most discouraging feature we now have is that Mr. Trump has made only one thing clear, and that Bill Clinton's marital infidelities are not off the table when it comes to the presidential election, which will not give us a lot of light about his own preferences on judicial appointments. Ted Olson, the former Solicitor General, wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago basically arguing for a sort of grand bargain where judicial nominations were concerned. Let me – I'm going to read you a um, quote here from the piece. Mm-hmm. As unlikely as it might be, Republicans could make Merrick Garland's nomination a turning point, but it cannot be a unilateral ceasefire. If they are willing to consider Mr. Garland on the merits, Democrats would in exchange have to commit to consider future Supreme Court nominees with the same level of courtesy, decency, and respect – when a Republican occupies the White House. Close quote. That too idealistic to work, Richard? Well, what's happened is we've had massive distrust, and it turns out for the most part when it comes to pulling the trigger, it's the Democrats who have deviated first. So there is no question that all of this stuff started a long time ago with Miguel Estrada as one of the leading cases in the early Bush two years. And the chief argument for keeping him off the Supreme Court was that he was a Hispanic who was too qualified um, and he might be a potential Supreme Court nominee. And so they started with the blockade, and it continued all the way through the Bush era, and then when the tables got turned, it still continues the current way. But remember, it was Harry Reid who broke the filibuster rule. It was not George Bush who did that. And so once it was quite clear that the deviation came from the Democrats on that particular nuclear option at the lower court level, I think it would be foolish for the Republicans to say, we'll go first. I think the Democrats have to go first on this thing in order to reassemble it. What's going to happen, of course, is as the composition of the Senate starts to change, um, the new guys are going to say, we're not bound by the old fellow. So in this sort of situation, to think that you could make an intertemporal deal work strikes me as being unduly optimistic. Believe me, I certainly wish that it were right. But if you start thinking about the nominations, remember the two Clinton nominations, Breyer and Ginsburg, were basically cakewalks. The two Republican nominations before that, um, on the Bork nomination which is, and the um, Thomas nomination, were anything but cakewalks. And then when Alito and Roberts come up, again, we get ourselves a brawl. Uh, so this is not not a situation in which the Democrats have ever backed off with the last four nominees and the last two Republican Democratic nominees essentially got a very courteous treatment, even though in the case of Ginsburg, she's pretty far to the left. So I don't think it's going to happen, actually. I, I think that we're in for a, a kind of a nuclear winter on this. And the only way you're going to get a deal is to have the following unique condition. Um, somebody else leaves. You then have two nominations that have to be taken up and the Republicans will eagerly 
accept a 1-1 split on that to keep the status quo ante, and the Democrats would go apoplectic if that were done. So as far as I can tell, uh, this is a very grim, highly polarized time. Uh, I think, in fact, one of the reasons why it's so difficult is with the political agenda being as aggressive as it is on the liberal Democratic side today, uh, the court as a counterweight becomes all the more important for the Republicans. And it's not just a question of being a counterweight to Congress. Uh, there are huge questions about executive action independent of Congress. And so long as Obama is prepared to move very aggressively on things like the immigration reform after announcing he's not authorized to do it, it's not just a question on this particular case of using the court as a check against the Congress. It's using the court as a check against the president as well. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.